Revelation 4, there's a door that's open in heaven. And the voice says, come up hither. In Revelation 19, the door is opened in heaven and someone comes down. So if you can look at 4 and 19, it kind of gives you a little bit of bookends on both sides, what happens. And in between that is called the tribulation period. Let's look at uh, the first one here. On your handout, it tells you the four Gospels give us an, an excellent example of how the Word of God reveals truth. Each book covers the same period, bringing out certain proprietary details of the Lord's life on earth. Matthew sets forth Christ as Israel's Messiah and King, Mark as the servant of the Lord, Luke as the Son of Man, John as the Son of God. So we have one story of Christ, and yet four different narratives, perspectives on Christ. Um, Interestingly enough, we know Christ is the Word, and yet He does not write anything while He is on this earth as a human, except for when He knelt down and wrote in the sand. And and so it reminds us that uh, John tells us at the end that if if, if all the books were written that should be written about Christ's uh, uh, ministry, the world could not contain the books. But he did give us four perspectives. One, two, three, four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as you're going through, that can help you to see the emphasis in each of those Gospels. And you don't need to worry if you study you know, theology. You don't need to worry about synoptic Gospels and things like that. Um, don't worry about that. Uh, how do I know that? Because God decided what he was going to put in the Word. And we don't have to say, well, we have these three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that really seem similar. And then John, I don't know where he came from. One thing to keep in mind is John was writing at the end of his life in AD 90. And so when he's filling it in, he's filling in not just what he remembers, what he said, but he's also including all of what Paul had written up to that point, which was different than what Matthew and Mark and Luke did. Luke was somewhere in right in the middle of Paul's ministry, but John is writing from the end, so to speak, after all of the revelation of the mystery, the, the, the mysteries that God had given to Paul. He's writing from that, and he is including all that Paul said and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So when you're looking at it, you're going, man, alive. I don't, how how does that work? Seems like he has such a different perspective. It's because it's so much more uh, overarching. It includes a lot more. Now, just like the four Gospels, we have number two in the book of Revelation, one main storyline with four different versions of the story. And I say different versions, I don't mean different stories, I mean different versions. What In what way? Each version, version containing proprietary details, all right? They don't completely overlap. I want you to understand that. It's not like, oh, I get it, it's the trumpets and the seals and the vials are all just different ways of saying the same thing. Uh, no, it's not that simple. I wish it was. The problem is you can't line up all those, the personalities, trumpets, seals, vials, you can't line them all up very easily. Now, people try, and there are some things that do line up, but the problem is, what happens when the puzzle piece doesn't fit? You either force it to fit, and then you're really surprised when the, when the actual piece comes along, or you wait. You got to wait, and you got to keep going. So, really, they do have some over, what is the same is that it's the same time frame. There's four... Um, Examples are there's foretellings of Christ's 
return. We have that. We know that that's the same thing. But in between, every little thing is not the same. So just keep in mind, you've got four different versions of the story. One version is going to include something that the other version doesn't include. You don't have to take those two and try to put them and make them the same. Just leave them as they are. If it, if it hurts too much to fit, it hurts too much to make it work, you probably don't have enough information or you shouldn't be putting it together. So this is, this is me trying to explain how frustrating it can be in the book of Revelation as you're going through. But you don't have to worry about it. It's the Holy Spirit. Uh, he wrote it and he'll help you as you go through. But I'll give you some examples of this. Um, we know that since Revelation 6 that we've been looking at, he's been going on this journey and he's seen this tribulation four times through these four different figures. And so the first time was the opening of the seals, seven seals in chapters 5 to 8. The second time was the, uh, the sounding of seven trumpets, chapters 8 to 11. Third time was the revealing of seven personalities. Remember, the woman, the dragon, Michael, and so forth, chapters 12 to 14. The fourth time and the final time is what we're starting into now, chapter 15, where God is preparing John to see the tribulation through the pouring of seven vials. Seven vials. Number three, so we've got four different uh, figures that he uses, seals, trumpets, personalities, vials, though they are not exactly the same. They are four different trips, and there's different highlights throughout, okay? Um, number three, Revelation is a book of prophecy, so often the future event is announced, followed by details that led up to that event, in other words, God writes a headline, and then he tells the story behind it. Okay, so when you read a headline, it says, man jumps over fence and dies. All right? And then you go through. Early, one sat early on Saturday morning, roughly 3.45 a.m., police were alerted to the sound of a man, whatever. And it goes on. It does, it's not telling you that this headline happened, and then it happened again. It's telling you this happened, and here's what led up to that. See what I'm saying? And the book of Revelation does that several times. It says, here's an event as if it's happening right now, and then it goes back in time and tells you what led up to that event. So it's not two different times that it's happening. That's where we get easily confused. You follow what I'm saying? Okay, look, let's look at several places it does that. Uh, first is the seventh verse in the book of Revelation says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. That doesn't happen until chapter 19. Okay, so did he come with clouds and then he went back up to heaven and then he's coming back in chapter 19? No, he is prophesying because Revelation is a book of prophecy, the words of this prophecy. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. And then he backs up and says, and here's what's going to lead up to that event. The second example is in chapter 6, verse 12. You have the sixth seal, and it presents the great day of the Lord several years before it takes place. Because then we have in chapter uh, 8, the seventh seal, he goes back and he deals with the various details that lead up to that date. You know, you can see your, your kid running up, so-and-so cut his finger on his bike chain. And what does mom say? Well, tell me how it happened. Right? So you go back and you reveal 
the, st- the details all the way up until that point. Of course, when it's kids, it's something like, He's, Jerry's got a bottle stuck on his nose. You're like, what in the world are you talking about? How is that even possible? And then you go back and you review the details. A relation is like that, except it's a lot stranger than that. Uh, number three, letter C, the seventh trumpet in uh, chapter 11. It talks about the anger of the nations, the coming of God's wrath. And then chapters 12 and 13 go back to describe God's plan for Israel and how he's going to protect Israel. Remember in the wilderness and so forth. What we looked at last time at the close of chapter 14, we saw the Son of Man reaping the harvest of the earth and twetting, uh, twetting. Hey, hey, man, a little, I'm working on it, people. Don't laugh at me. He was twetting the wine press. <laughs> I'm again. Oh, man, Elmer Fudd, the Ministries Incorporated. Uh, He's reaping the, let's try this again, reaping the harvest of the earth and treading the winepress of Armageddon. So we saw that at the end of chapter 14 last time. Remember the two harvests? Okay. And then now we're going to look at events in chapters 15 and 16, events that lead up to chapter 14. So I, I want you to understand that because if you're like me, when you start reading Revelation, you're going, I don't get it. I don't get it. Okay, here's how you learn the Bible. You're really confused, you study to show yourself approved, and you learn. Okay, and then once you're at that level, you don't have to ever touch your Bible again because you know it all. (laughs) A lot of Christians seem to think that. You know, they read a book by Dr. So-and-so and and they're like, got it. May I remind you, (laughs) there's a lot of Dr. So-and-sos out there. And so what you have to do is you have one authority. And then you have a bunch of people that say, well, don't forget this. Read that. This, don't forget about this verse. And that ties in with this. And you go, oh, wow, wow, wow. That's a lot. If you ever get tired of reading other people, that's okay. You can just read your Bible and rest on the words of God. And then when you get a little more energy, come back to it and say, Holy Spirit, teach me. Show me something different. Because this is the eternal word of God. It's not that you can't ever know things. It's that you'll never know it all. And so if you, if you think, man, I just want to download this right now and get this down, forget it. You know what you're going to end up with? You're going to end up with pride. A lot of pride. And there ain't nobody more proud than a Bible nerd that doesn't have a humble spirit before God. You really, and I'm telling you, wars, wars are started most of the time over religion of some kind. We've got a big religious war going over in the Middle East right now. And, uh, and, and so what happens is, People get stuck because they know it all. Doctrine should make you more humble before God. So you should learn more doctrine and be more impressed with God than you are with yourself. So you keep learning, 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 keep getting lower and lower before God. And if you humble yourself, God will exalt you and he'll use you. Why? Because you lift his book up. Uh, So some people say, well, that's why I don't want to learn the Bible because I don't want to get proud. No, that's pride too. Because you don't love God's book. God loves his book. It's his word. It's who he is on paper. So the Lord gets you coming or going. <laughs> Either way, he's going to get you. But I, but I wanted to show that to you because 
It can be discouraging. That's, I think, an important principle. If you can remember, God will say it, and then he'll go back and give you the events leading up to that very thing. And then number four, though Revelation is not always chronological, there is a definite sequence. Now, again, remember, it's not chronological because sometimes God will state event, and then after the event, we think, you know, left to right, after the event, he goes back and says, well, here's what's coming before that event. But just because it's not always chronological doesn't mean there isn't a sequence. There has to be a sequence. And you know this with movies. Movies, you get tired of this theme, so they do a prequel, right? A prequel, a prequel. So, you know, what, for instance, Star Wars, you had episodes four, five, and six came first. And then what do they do? One, two, and three came afterwards. After that, seven, eight, and nine. And sometimes that's the way the Lord does it. But keep in mind... Um, it does not mean because the, the Lord does that, that there's not a sequence. There is a sequence, a narrative, an overarching narrative in the scripture. So what we're looking at tonight, it speaks of seven last plagues, and those plagues are not identical with the trumpets because the effects of the effect of the vials is three times greater than that of the trumpets. Okay, this is how we make distinctions. See how it, the, the, what happens with the vials is worse, as far as people dying, than what happens with the trumpets. In both cases, people die, but the distinction is how many people die as a result of the vials. You see what I'm saying? That word last is important. Um, and we won't go on in, any more into that. But let's, let's jump into Revelation chapter 15 now. Revelation 15. It says, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, the Lord seems to be referring here. He says, what's the, what's the word, the third word? Uh, is that the fourth word? I saw another sign in heaven. Now, in Scripture, you often hear a phrase, signs and wonders. I say that because... There is no other sign mentioned, the word sign, in Revelation. Okay? He does use the word signified or signified. That's what the Lord does in Revelation. But he doesn't use the word sign. And what is it? Well, he said, I saw another sign. The best I can guess is that he's referring to signs and wonders. Look back, if you would, at Revelation 12. Revelation 12, look at verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. Verse 3, And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. There's Satan. He gets kicked out of heaven and he comes down. So we have two wonders. Now, now, now the, the world wonders after the beast, but that's not a wonder in heaven. That's not connected with God. That's connected with Satan. Here, this wonder in heaven is that this, this dragon is going to get kicked out. This great wonder. And apparently that's what he's referring to in chapter 15 when he says, I saw another sign. A sign and wonder. Connected. Revelation 15 is a wonderful place because it's, it's talking about the time when justice is finally going to be served on this planet. It's when the meek and lowly Lamb of God becomes the fierce and ferocious lion of the tribe of Judah. The actual pouring out of the vials does not take place until chapter 16. 
But in chapter 15, God prepares John, and he, in so doing, he prepares us for what he's about to show him. And what he's going to show him is great and marvelous wrath. 15.1 again. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. John sees it. He says, I saw it. It made me marvel. He said, I, I shook my head and it blew me away. I, I just couldn't hardly believe what I was seeing. Letter A. John allows us to look at the scene he describes for us. What does he see? He sees seven angels. Now we know seven in the Bible is the number of what? Completion or perfection, some have said. And uh, it's, it's used that way often. And so in Revelation, the final book of the Bible, the Lord uses seven over and over and over again. I think around 57 times, something like the 59 times. It just keeps popping up. So whatever, whatever these angels are going to do, it's going to be done perfectly. It's going to be done completely. Seven angels are about to, to do something that God considers perfect. What does he see? He sees seven angels holding seven plagues, which are the fullness of the wrath of God. The wrath of God up to its fullest. The last 6,000 years of human history, God has been dealing with man in mercy. He shows long-suffering. He is tender-hearted. He shows compassion. That is how God has been dealing with mankind. And people talk about, I can't believe in a God who would. And you need to understand that uh, God has been putting up with a lot for a long, 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 long time. And he is showing mercy. Anytime you say, I don't know why God took my mom. Obviously, it's painful. It's difficult. Let me ask you this. Why didn't God take your dad and your sister and your brother and your next door neighbor? We never think about what we have left, Right? Why aren't we all struggling with cancer right now? Why aren't we all uh, homeless? Why aren't we all hungry and starving? Sometimes we think, I can't believe in a God who would, and we forget that we're not. We're not actually going through what we accuse God of punishing someone else with. So just keep that in mind. God's been putting up with a lot. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3 that uh, the scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. In fact, God is so long-suffering that, they, that, that people scoff at the return of Jesus Christ. It, it's like saying, that it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's never going to happen. He's not coming back. Why do you keep saying he's coming back? It's stupid. Do you know how foolish you sound? You know how antiquated and arcane you sound when you say Jesus is coming back? That proves the long-suffering of God. That He's taken so long to be long-suffering and merciful that people don't even believe he's ever going to do anything about it. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Why? Not willing that any should perish. Why hasn't Jesus come back? Because there's still people on your street, in your family, that are not saved. 
That's why Jesus hasn't come back. I promise you this. When you see Jesus return and you see uh, some, down, some way day down there with the great white throne judgment and you see people that you know being cast into the lake of fire, you're going to say, why couldn't you have waited longer? Why? He doesn't want anyone to die. He doesn't want them to, to go into the lake of fire. You know what his attitude has been? Go back to Ezekiel, if you would, chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, that's going to be over um, after Isaiah, Jeremiah, a couple of monster books in the Old Testament, and then you got Ezekiel. Ezekiel, look at 18.23. 18.23, he said, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God? You know, you'll hear sometimes people say, well, God hates the wicked. God hates, well, it's true. God hates the wicked. And yet God is so amazing and powerful that God doesn't want people that he hates to die and go to hell. It's a lot different than you and I. Because once we hate somebody, that's it. We wish they never existed. Or if they do exist, we wish they would just go away somewhere. God hates evil and hates the wicked, and yet he can't stand the thought of them going to hell. Look what he says. What does he want them to do? And, and not that he should, he said, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live. Absolutely. Look at chapter 33. Ezekiel 33. Verse 11. He said, say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, now, you're talking about the life of God himself. As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Look at Isaiah. Go backwards to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. We will look at a bunch of scripture tonight, so hang in there if you would. Isaiah 55, look at verse 7, 55, 7. He says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What does God want a wicked man to do? Repent. Repent. Turn around. Forsake his ways and his thoughts. So the Lord's been warning that there was going to come a day that he was no longer going to offer his mercy. He said, stop, 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 don't do it, turn around. And, and we find that in the Old Testament. He said, I don't want you to die, I want you to turn around. But he tells us in the book of Acts, let's go to 1731. Acts chapter 17, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Over in the New Testament, chapter 17, look at verse 31. Here we have preaching... To a, a pagan society, here is Paul preaching in Athens, and he's preaching to a bunch of people who don't believe in God as far as the one true God. They believe in multiple gods. And this is what he says in chapter 17, verse 31. He said, because he, that is God, hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. That's Jesus. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. 
We don't talk about this often. But the Lord said, I promise you, I will fix evil. Evil will pay. And one of the proofs that I am going to make evil pay is that I'm going to raise my son from the dead. And I'm going to use my son, who I raised from the dead, to judge the world. You're not getting away with it. Even if you kill my son, I'm bringing him back from the dead and he will be the judge. He's been warning us all along the way. And so when we look at Revelation chapter 15, we find that the Lord is, is it, this, this wrath has finally been filled up. It's finally reached the point of being full. And John says there's something amazing, incredible. He uses the words marvelous and wonderful. Now, we, we think of marvelous and wonderful, we think of good. Well, it is good from the standpoint of God's justice finally being enacted. But think about the words, wonder, wonder. It can be a good or a bad thing. It's something that makes you wonder, what in the world is that? Wonder. So it'd be kind of like um, you see something floating in the air and you can't understand what is, and then you realize, oh, it's the light. It's the, your, your mind is racing, trying to figure it out. And, and John is looking at these vials and he is amazed by them. He, he's filled with wonder and he is marveling. Wow. Wow. What does it look like in those vials? I don't know. I don't know. But God's wrath has been filling up for 6,000 years. Um, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 are, are, are both chapters that talk about how back way back when in the Garden of Eden, long before Adam was ever there, there was an anointed cherub who was very close to the throne of God, and his name, Lucifer, meant light bearer. And his job was to reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time you see Christ manifested in, a, in, in, a, in, in human flesh without a veil, it's this blinding light. And that was Lucifer's job. He was the light bearer. Lucifer, that's what it means. He reflected the light of God. Well, somehow, from that exalted position, Lucifer rebelled against God. And so he lost that anointed cherub position, that special place. And from that point, God's wrath started to fill up. For the first time in God's eternal existence, God's wrath started to fill up. So what happens is later, God goes down uh, into that same garden, and he takes some dust out of the ground, and he forms a man named Adam. And he gives Adam that job of bringing glory to himself that Lucifer lost. And as soon as he got put there, as soon as God formed that man, Satan started scheming how he was going to bring that man down. And so he slithered his way into the garden and he deceived the woman and got to the man. And what happened? Man sinned and God's wrath filled up a little bit more. So all down through history, you find this. Anytime... There was someone who tried to bring God glory, was supposed to bring God glory. Satan would empower the wicked or himself. He would come and he would persecute them or kill them. Anytime someone tries 
to honor God, Satan comes along and tries to persecute them. Now, he doesn't always persecute them physically. A lot of times we think of persecution as just, you know, being thrown in jail, getting beat up. But persecution is not introduced in the scripture that way. The Bible says that Job's friends persecuted him. How do they do it? They argued with him, they debated with him, and they tried to bring him down. Now, they thought they were doing good, but that's what persecution is. Persecution is opposition. Now, some of you are being persecuted right now, and you don't even realize it. You think it's just you're confused. Satan likes to bring fiery darts into your mind. He'll, he'll have you thinking thoughts about how you were raised, about your spouse, about your kids, about your church, about brothers and sisters in Christ, about your boss. He will oppose you mentally more than anything. Sometimes the only option he has left is persecuting you physically. And he will do that. And if he can, if he can put people to death, he will do that. But he's not bound by that. And the idea that somehow we're not persecuted in America is, is very untrue. Because believers are as tied up by Satan as anyone. You know what, the, what, what happens when you actually get persecuted for following Jesus Christ physically? You know what you end up with? You end up having joy in your heart. You know, a lot of Christians are persecuted by Satan. There ain't no joy in their heart anywhere. They're constantly opposed and being embattled by wicked thoughts. And you think they're your thoughts. That's what he wants you to think. He imitates. He's a counterfeiter. Comes in and he says, this is how you think. This is your pattern of speech. This is how you act and interact in the world. And if it's, if it's wrong and sinful, it's, it's a lie. You're supposed to be fulfilling the life of Jesus Christ. So those nasty words that come to mind, those are not the words of Jesus. And you say, well, that's how I was raised. But you've been, you've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth. Well, I've had a hard life. No, no, your life is Jesus Christ's life. Well, I had a horrible childhood. Not in Christ you didn't. You see what I'm saying? You say, well, that's just, that's just, that's stupid. Is it really stupid? Or would it be stupid to pretend to be fixing a problem that you've never made any progress on in 40 years? You've never actually moved the needle. And every time you move forward, you fall backwards. Why? Because you're stuck and you, your flesh knows that it's stuck and the devil keeps telling you that you're stuck. Why? You're listening to lies. He's the father of lies. Your eternal home. What's crazy is you live this world down here knowing that your eternal home is going to be in heaven. You're never going to have these thoughts again. You're never going to have these struggles again. You're not going to have these, ha these bad habits when you get to heaven. But you're supposed to have them down here. You know the only reason why that you're going to go to heaven is because you, if, if anyone is going to heaven, it's because they have the power to live a Christ-like life, Christ life now on this earth. Not because they've worked for it, because God gave it to them in Jesus Christ. You receive his righteousness. What is that? His right works. The way he lives. You got it. I've got it. Well, I just really struggle with this and that. Your new nature doesn't struggle with it. 
Your old nature may be stuck on it, but let me tell you this, that's not God's fault. God gave you a new existence, a new identity. You can live in that every day of your life if you choose to. Now, I'm not, listen, I'm not stupid. I'm a human. I know how hard it is. I know how we struggle. But I'm telling you, it's a constant battle to say, no, brain, no, personality. You listen to me. I'm not what I used to be. Now, because I have Christ, I have access to the very power of God himself through the words of God. I don't have to act that way towards my spouse. I don't have to act that way towards my neighbor or towards my boss. I don't have to have those disgusting habits that no one knows about but me. I don't have to have them anymore. I'm crucified with Christ. Hey, listen, Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8 will help you a great deal if you're struggling with this. Great deal. God's wrath, though, is filling up. God, God, God is looking for people to honor him. As soon as someone tries to honor him with their life, Satan comes after them and begins to persecute them. All down through history. Started back in the Garden of Eden and then it continued with Cain and Abel. Look, look, look if you would, um, look at Hebrews over towards the, towards the middle, uh, two-thirds of the way through the New Testament, maybe three-quarters, something like that. Revelation, uh, Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. And then look at uh, 1 John chapter 3. Man, we got to roll, don't we? We're going to do it, though. Don't worry. 11.4. Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was what? Righteous. Righteous. All right? He was righteous. Look at 1 John chapter 3. All the way up against Revelation there. 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 12. 1 John 3, 12. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. The Lord tells us in this verse the reason that Cain killed Abel. Because Abel was trying to honor God. The very first person who was killed for trying to honor God was Cain. And why? His works were righteous. And Abel being of that wicked one. The same reason why the the scribes and Pharisees killed Jesus. He said, ye are of your father, the devil. They were of that wicked one. And what did they choose to do? They chose to call for the death of Jesus Christ, to persecute the very Son of God. And so we have that pattern all through history. Someone follows God, Satan persecutes him or her, and God's wrath is filled up. Because I, w- I want you to see that. Sometimes we think, well, persecution, you know, it's, it's, we have to endure it. Don't forget, when God sees injustice, his wrath is filled up. Let's look at several places in Psalms. Look at Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Psalm 37, look at verse... I guess we should look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Look at verse uh, 37, 12. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. 
The wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down who? The poor and needy and to slay such as be of upright conversation. Their sword shall enter into their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Look at verse 32. The wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. Let's, uh, let's go over to Psalm 94. We've got a couple places here. We can go to either way. Psalm 94, look at verse 5. You see, you can't see it on earth because it's not being accumulated on earth. It's being stored in heaven, apparently in vials. Look at uh, Psalm 11, verse 2. For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. The wicked are shooting at the upright. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try... The children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. <clears throat> I don't know what the cup looks like, but I know that there's a vial up there. It's full of the wrath of God. And so what we want to say is, well, God isn't listening. God does two things when someone is persecuted. He is purifying, training, helping the righteous learn a lesson through the persecution. While he's doing that, he's saying, and I'm not forgetting you, wicked guy. I'm filling up the wrath. I'm not going to jump. Because see, as parents, you know what we do? We discipline our kids when we're mad. Like the real sin that our kids do is making us mad. Like every, I told you not to do it. I told you to, it's like, don't touch that. You know, don't touch that. 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 And then finally, after the 100th time, we're mad that we have to keep saying that. And so now we punish our kid because the real crime is making me mad. All right? Well, the Lord is different than that. The Lord doesn't get mad because someone makes him mad. The Lord is mad because someone is sinning. But he doesn't jump, like he doesn't get mad because someone spills their milk, right? We, we would. Like someone ruins something that's nice and it's not a sin, it was an accident, but we're like, freak out, right? That's not a godly trait at all. God's, God's character is this. He allows a person to sin, but he never forgets. He never forgets. We forget all the time. It's like, well, I don't, I'm not, you know, your kids are not in trouble anymore. You ever remember uh, when, you're, when you get home, you're in big trouble. And then you're just praying that maybe there would be something that would cause them to forget by the time you get home. And sometimes they would forget. And you're like, thank the Lord. The Lord never forgets. And so you might even think that because God hasn't done anything to you, the Bible says because evil is not executed speedily, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. They think because God hasn't smashed them yet that he's okay with it. And he just lets it go and go and go and go and go. And at the end of it, the wrath is filled up and he says, I'm going to pour it all out. How much of it? All of it. All right, now look at, uh, look at chapter 94. Chapter 94. Now, I, this is, I, want you to, I want to encourage you, because if you feel that there is injustice done, well, number one, 
You're not the first one. And number two, God does not forget injustice. Look at Psalm 94. Look at verse 5. It says, They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, The Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. I I just have to stop there for a moment and and say, they, they, They say, The Lord shall not see. I, I have no problem believing this verse because when I, when I hear people saying, we're being persecuted in Gaza, it's a genocide. It's almost as if they're saying, no one has actually seen what we did on October the 7th. It, it, it's unbelievable how someone could do it and then say, if I said it, I didn't say it. If I did it, I didn't do it. But that's human nature, isn't it? The ability to do something and then lie about it, bald-faced lie about it, and then complain when someone else does something that's not as bad as what I did to someone. That's what humans do. And they say, the Lord doesn't see this. The Lord, he, 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 there is no God. Stop saying that. Right? And what's the Lord doing? He's not afraid of that. He's just marking it, marking it, marking it. Fills it up. Look at verse number 12. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. It reminds me of some old Western movie. You know, showing the, the grave digger out there. Right? Your grave is already being dug, the Lord said. But notice, even in the midst of the adversity, Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. It is good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. God can use the worst circumstances in your life to teach you lessons. Now, I remind you, it is not God that is punishing you. Who's punishing you? A sinner is punishing you. Either a sinner outside or a sinner inside and his actions and the consequences of his or her actions is punishing you. It's because of sin that you are being punished. Either someone else's sin or your own sin. But God is going to even use that to teach you lessons about himself. God is is very efficient. He blows the Scandinavians away. (laughs) He is very efficient. He is like the old Native Americans. He uses all the buffalo. God will use all of what's happening in your life. Because not only is he going to train you and teach you through this, he said, oh, and you, by the way, you that taught him this great lesson, you're getting yours. He's going to use it. Look what he says in verse number 21. They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous, condemn the innocent blood, but the Lord is my defense and my God is the rock of my refuge. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. So remember, God is keeping track. He's keeping track of what's going on. All through the Old Testament, anytime somebody reminded Satan of the righteousness and the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he would empower the wicked to go after them and afflict them. And in some cases, the Lord would even point out people who were exemplifying godliness and godly character to Satan himself. You see, God has the power to use all of these things. He pointed Job out to Satan. Hast thou considered my servant Job? 
If that doesn't tell you that Satan is not omniscient, nothing does. Because wouldn't it be true that Satan would, would want, say, Lord, please let me go after him? Satan is not all-powerful. Job had a hedge around him, and he had to ask God to take that hedge down in order to attack him. You see, God is keeping an eye on all things in your life. He knows where you are. <clears throat> and and when the best thing, you're going to suffer anyhow, right? You're going to get old anyhow. You're going to, you're going to, your body's going to fall apart anyhow, right? You're going to die anyhow. Why not, since you're going to hurt anyhow, why not get persecution because you're serving God? I mean, seriously, it's, it's like a surprise to some Christians that they're getting old. That's <laughs> like, wait a minute, I thought, like, we all have a death timer, right? We don't know when it is, but we know it is. And if the rapture takes place, praise God for it. But most people don't live in the light of the rapture, they live in the light of their death. Except they complain about it. Hey, let's use it. Anytime we're being persecuted, whether that's spiritual or physical, hey, let's praise God through it. God can use That's crazy. I know. It is crazy. But it sure beats what a lot of Christians are doing. Living miserable lives, always upset and irritated, always, you know, been, you've been Fox Newsed. Listen, I, is it a surprise that in the world you shall have tribulations? It shouldn't be. He told us about it, right? All right, now... Hebrews chapter 11 tells us there's a lot, a lot of things that happen. And we won't go into it, but let me read it to you, 1135. It says, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder. When's the last time you were sawn asunder? Or heard of someone being sawn asunder that was close to you? These people were. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being de- probably not just because they were naked, could be because they were hiding, pretending to be a sheep or a goat. You ever think about that? They were destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy of them. But they were in the world being persecuted by the world. Okay? God allows unworthy people to persecute worthy people. And, and by the way, <laughs> be careful before you designate your suffering as I'm a worthy person being persecuted by unworthy people. Right? You know, just maybe take S another second opinion before you do that. Why? Yeah, it could be that the person's mad at you because you smacked them in the face, not because you were so Christ-like. All right? We've got to keep that in mind. But it is true that God allows unworthy people to attack worthy people. And if you feel lonely and depressed and, and discouraged, it, it could very well be that God is allowing Satan to attack you. He's allowing those, those thoughts to inflict on your brain. Why? Because God hates you. That's just the way it is. You're God's special torture device that he loves to hit. No. He is using that to purify you. Isn't it true that when people are going into surgery, they ask people to pray for them? Yes, of course. You know what's interesting to me? Christians don't ask other Christians, I'm really struggling right now with my thought life. Would you please pray for me? Imagine if we put that through in the prayer chain. Pray for brother so-and-so. He's really struggling right now with his finances. 
Isn't it weird how we want other, we're okay with people praying for our physical body, but not for our spiritual, the things that really matter. The things that really will last for eternity, your body's going to die, he's going to change it, you know, get rid of it, it's not worthy. It's not worthy of heaven. But your spirit, your soul, those things that affect your spiritual life, that's what we really need prayer for. Amen? But, but, but these people here are wandering around and God is allowing that to happen. I want you to think just briefly about the fact that Jesus Christ himself was down here. And he went through those same things. Remember when he went through that mock trial and how Satan was goading goading those soldiers and those scribes and Pharisees. Hey, say crucify him. Ever since the time Jesus was born, the Bible tells us in Revelation 12, Satan was there, the dragon was there waiting to devour that man-child all the way through. But God never allowed it. He protected his son. But he didn't keep him from pain and suffering. He was in all points tempted like as we are. The Bible says he was driven by the devil into the wilderness. That's how he started his earthly ministry. Baptized, praise the Lord, what a wonderful day, this is great. In whom, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now Satan pushes Jesus into the wilderness. And that's what happens in the Christian life. If you do anything for God and make one step, Satan's going to come out and he's going to start goading you and he's going to push you. And no, your flat tire may or may not be a spiritual thing. Okay, I don't know for sure. I know this, the devil likes it when you're really upset and freaked out about your flat tire. I know that. He can use anything. You know, the last uh, lifesaver going away. Oh, and that little pang, and now you're depressed the rest of the day. Right? He can use anything, but sometimes he on purpose is coming after you. We know that Jesus goes all the way, and, and, and he's there in the garden, and Judas comes. Judas is Satan incarnate at this point. Judas comes and kisses him, and they drag him away. What do they do? They begin to mock him, and they scourge him, and they put on him a crown of thorns, and they, they beat that crown of thorns down into his face. He's bloody. And the sweat and the blood is everywhere. And they come in and they mock him and they say, if thou be the son of God. And all the while, what's happening? God's wrath is filling up. And he goes all the way through and he's, he's killed. He's, his, his hands and feet are nailed to that cross. All the while, the wrath of God. It's building. It's growing. With every blow that was delivered, with every word that was spoken in mockery, with every pounding of those nails into his hands and his feet, every piercing of those thorns into his brow, with every breath that Jesus struggled to draw on the cross, up in heaven, God's wrath was filling up. And it filled up, and what happened? Well, on the earth, the sun became black at high noon, and it was a foreshadowing of what's going to take place when Christ returns the second time to this earth. And, 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 and really, for the last 2,000 years, there have been more than 50 million martyrs. 50 million people have died because of claiming the name of Jesus Christ. They're thrown to wild animals. They're dipped in tar. They're thrown on hot grills. They were, they were skewered. They're impaled on a stake. They were put in, in, in special torture devices to pull them apart. Hebrews references being sawn asunder. 
They're put into ovens. They were crucified. I mean, you, you go and read some of these stories. It's hard to even imagine. How could people be so disgusting? And worst of all, they were many of them doing it um, in the name of God to purify people. What a horrible thing. And every single one of those 50 million murders, what's happening? God's wrath is filling up. It's filling up. It's filling up. You know, you, you, you see, anytime someone's picking on someone, and, 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 and you find that little thing in your heart that says, you ain't doing that. What is that? It's wrath. I remember as a child, coming out of a restaurant one night, and I don't know what was happening, but across the street in a parking lot, there was a girl, and there was a bunch of guys that apparently were drunk, and I don't know, there was bottles I remember on the car hood, and they're roughing her up and pushing her. And I remember my dad going across the street and confronting those guys. Now, what made him do that? was wrath. It was injustice that was being done. I thank God for that example in my life, and I think we need more of that. We need more men who will stand up and say, I'm going I'm to do what needs to be done. I think we have some men like that here. But you, can you imagine? I mean, we think about, you know, Hulk, the Incredible Hulk. You know, what happens? Well, he, he's a normal guy, right? Until he gets pushed. Clark Kent, he's a normal guy. Until something happens, he's got to step into action. He's got to find a phone booth somewhere, right? David Banner, same thing. Batman, he's just a normal guy. You know, we, we, we don't think about how the long-suffering, the gentleness and kindness of God is, is not going to keep him from becoming that superhero that unleashes not, hey, if you can cheer when, when, when you know, the Incredible Hulk steps in to justify a wrong, when you can, if you can cheer for Superman who swoops in and kapow, then you get a little picture of what God is going to be like. Look what it says in, back in Revelation chapter 16. Chapter 16. Revelation 16, and this is after these vials are poured out. 16, verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. There came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. It is done. That's why Revelation 15 calls them the seven last plagues, because when this is over, it's done. Once the last vial has been poured out, then God is going to return. And you know what that tells us? Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, 2 Peter 3 tells us, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? What, what is the crime rate here in Toledo? How many broken-hearted mothers are grieving tonight because their son was killed in a drive-by due to gang violence? How many wives or sisters are upset? And you know what you want to do? You, 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 you want to look at those people and you, you want to make sure, you know what they say? They say, I just want them to have justice. I want them to be held accountable for what they did. And what every person who says that and whatever person that feels that way, they are just encapsulating a little miniature version of our God who is building and building and building and building. 
It's filling up, and he's got seven vials. I don't know if that's where everything is stored, and maybe they've got another place. I don't know, but I just, from what I can see in Scripture, there's seven vials, and each one is getting filled up. Are they getting filled up simultaneously? I don't know. Is it one, and then the next one, and then the next one? Somehow it seems to me like it would be. One, two, three, four. Almost as if God is giving an option, a window for repentance. I know this, they're not filled up yet. There's people here that are thanking God that even though the wrath of God was on them, they no longer have to fear the wrath of God. The Bible tells us that we are not appointed unto wrath. Why? Because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. And that sin payment is available for everyone. It's available for everyone in your family, on your street, at your workplace, people you run into. It's available. You see, it's uncomfortable to talk about the wrath of God because we want to think about God as Santa Claus. Why? Because we're sinners. We don't want to be thinking about being held accountable for our sin. But I want to tell you, God is going to hold sinners accountable. Everyone who does not accept his son is going to be under the wrath of God. And so during this Christmas season, we're thinking about Jesus Christ coming. He came as a baby. The next time he's going to come as a king. He came around the animals. Next time he's going to come on a horse. And he's not going to be the lowly Galilean. I don't know about you. I'm not looking forward to the day that Jesus starts crushing heads. Any part of me that says that I am not, I have to remember, God is righteous and holy. And I remember why I don't really like that idea, because that's my flesh and blood. That's me without Jesus. I'd be in that same place of judgment if it weren't for him. I want to encourage you tonight, believer, don't be surprised if you're persecuted. Satan has always gone after people who try to serve God. Maybe that mental battle you've been facing is all because you're trying to follow Jesus. And if you will recognize that, it can help you. Run to him. It's not God that's causing the confusion in your heart. Satan. He persecutes the righteous he always has. God's going to teach you something through this. And don't forget, there's coming a day that God is going to drop the hammer on the devil. And when he does, it is done. It's over with.